Here's the question. Are you ready to study God's word today? Okay, and if we could also get the house lights up so that everybody can see as well. Uh, today we start a new series called U-Turn about the power of God to transform lives and turn us around. And the idea here is that no matter what you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, it is never too late. That's the hope and the promise of God. And uh, next week, we're going to hear some of those stories of God's miracle power. That is the driving force for our church, notre raison d'être. It's why we exist. The great commission or the, and the great commandment. The great commandment in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 39, Jesus replied on the screen, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. The great commandment. And then the great commission. Matthew chapter 28 Verse 18 and 20. Let's read it out loud together. Everybody out loud together. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Around here, we say it like this. God's love in us to the world. The great commandment and the great commission. Love God, build his kingdom, go out to share the good news in service for Jesus to our community and the world. And that's why we do so many of the things that we do around here all year round with things like Easter Bunny Blast and, and All Nations Sunday and Alpha courses and discipleship classes and Jingle Bell Rock and, and Celebrate Recovery and community service projects all year round as our, our small groups go out and serve in our cities and the surrounding towns. We want to share Jesus' love with people because as we build bridges of grace and love and truth into people's lives, then God has the opportunity by the power of Jesus to bring transformation and set people free. That is what we're about. And so uh, this summer, one of the events that we have planned is something that we call Summer Spectacular. Uh, Summer Spectacular is where we are reserving Victoria Park right downtown. And at Victoria Park, we are throwing a festival for the community. And there we'll have Christian music and free food and prizes and games and community service organizations uh, like uh, Magma and others who provide services for immigrants and community resources for poor and struggling families in our city uh, and for all different types of people. This will be our third summer doing this. And for the last two years, we have provided halal food as an option for our Muslim neighbors and refugees from Syria and more. 
And here's why. Because many times Muslims do not feel that they are welcome among Christians. One time I was talking with a Muslim business leader and I invited him. We started talking about our faith and, and I invited him to come to church, bring your family, experience the whole Christian community thing and, and see what Jesus is about. And he said, no, Joel, I can't do that. And I said, why? And he said, well, it's not because I'm forbidden to come and visit a church, but because I am not confident that Christians would welcome me. He said, and I know that you're a pastor, and I do not want you to get in trouble with your people for me coming to church. And I tried to assure him, oh, no, 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 no. We want everybody to come and hear about Jesus. But he did not think that Christians would welcome him. And so that is why we do events like this. But then last week, I mentioned at the end of the service uh, that we were going to talk today and unpack a subject because we actually received a few complaints. And I want to make sure you understand, it's not like, ooh, this murmur around the city. Literally, I'm talking about two people, okay? So I don't want to give the idea that we're talking about this huge movement, but one phone call and one social media post publicly accusing our church of selling out and compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you might think, what's the big deal? And Joel, even if there are some biblical issues around this question, why deal with this on a Sunday morning? What in the world does this even have to do with me? Well, actually, there are a few reasons. First of all, number one, we need to know what the Bible says because as more and more people come to our community and to our country from around the world, we need to know as Christians how to engage with people from different backgrounds and different faiths in order to share the love of Jesus. Number two, we also need to know the answers to some of these questions because we order our lives around this book. And we need to know when other Christians challenge us or even accuse us what the Bible actually says about such things. And so before we dig into what the Bible says, and I promise we're going to do a lot of Bible study today. In case you had not noticed, if you're new around here, let me tell you, we love God's Word. It is the foundation upon which we build everything. And so first, let me describe what halal food actually is. When it's certified that way, it is kind of similar to how uh, Jews have kosher food. Uh, Muslims also have, according to the Quran, certain ways that food has to be prepared. But here is the problem. Unlike kosher, some halal certifications, some require that Allah, the Arabic Muslim name for God, must be glorified as the animal is being slaughtered. That Allah must be glorified as the animal in the act of it being slaughtered. And so, that's the question. 
When the Bible talks about, and the Bible in the New Testament talks a lot about the issue, and we're going to talk, see why today it's, it's in so many different places in the New Testament, why it talks about uh, food sacrificed to idols, and is, is that applying to halal food, and is it okay for Christians to buy it or eat it? And guess what? This also applies to Middle Eastern restaurants. I bet many of you have eaten halal food and you didn't even know it. And so uh, let's see what the Bible says. The Old Testament had many food restrictions uh, and things began to change in the New Testament. And one of the earliest food-related questions in the New Testament is Mark chapter 2, verse 23 through 26, where one Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples, as they walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain out of the field to eat. And so the Pharisees said to them, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, what the Old Testament forbids? He answered, have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some, some to his companions. And so Jesus began to loosen some of the Old Testament restrictions concerning food. And then a dramatic shift takes place later when God gives a vision to the apostle Simon Peter. Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Peter saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. In other words, this is stuff that Jews were not allowed to eat according to the Old Testament, but Gentiles could. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, he replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Uh, this was a huge shift in the Christian journey away from the religious restrictions concerning food. And catch this. When you read this in this story, the rest of the chapter, its purpose was for the sake of outreach. For the sake of outreach, God said to these new Jewish Christians, you need to go out and connect with your Gentile neighbors. And so God freed us from all the Old Testament food restrictions, and now we can eat eat pork chops and ribs. We can have lobster. I thought in the Maritimes that might get a little bit of celebration. And so then as Christianity spread throughout the first century, it moved from these predominantly Jewish-influenced communities 
Now it's beginning to move into Roman cultures, Roman cities, and they were very different than Jewish cities. And in these Roman cities, there would be dozens and even hundreds of pagan gods and idols that they would worship. And so the question began to evolve with this. A new question arose. So now that we are no longer under Old Testament food restrictions, what do we now do living in cities where there is food sacrificed to pagan gods, any god other than Yahweh. And Yahweh is the Old Testament Hebrew name for God, our God. Now, isn't it wonderful when the Bible provides really clean and simple answers to questions like this? It's so funny, you just open it, thus saith the Lord. Well, guess what? This is not one of those issues where it's so clean and simple. Now, it looks like it if you take some verses out of context. Like, for example, Acts chapter 15, verse 29. The answer looks really simple. Acts 15, 29 says, you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, uh, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. And so when you read a verse like that in isolation, it seems like a really simple answer that if, if meat has been sacrificed to Allah, then a Christian probably should not eat it. End of story. But is that really the end of the story? Well, not if you then read all of what the New Testament has to say on this issue to other Christians and other contexts. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, Paul says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. But then look at what it says a few verses later. In just a few verses, verse 25, he says, eat anything sold in the market without raising question of conscience. In other words, whether it was sacrificed to idols or not, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Just eat whatever's put before you. It doesn't matter. Buy it. Eat it. Don't worry about it. It's all God's. Eat whatever you want. It says both of this these things in the same chapter. Or check out Romans chapter 14, verse 2. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. I'm not going to make a joke there about, uh, about that. I'm going to refrain. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another in terms of how uh, how the Sabbath and various festivals are, are, uh, are treated. Another considers every day alike. 
Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. In, order, in other words, we need to seek God's direction. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. And so it says the question of whether or not to eat meat or various types of meat or whether to observe certain holidays in a certain way, all of these issues come down to you need to seek the direction of God. So why all this confusion? Why does the New Testament seem to say in some places, do not eat meat that has been sacrificed to false gods? And in other places say, it's just food, eat whatever, it's all the same. What's going on here? First, we need to understand that the Bible is not contradicting itself. And what's, what's challenging for us is when we take verses out of context, we fail to see that many times different verses are talking about different circumstances. And once you begin to understand these different categories and circumstances, it begins to make more sense how it all fits together. And so, here's, here's what will clear up a lot of the confusion. The New Testament church made a distinction between, here are the two major categories. Number one, purchasing or eating meat that had been dedicated to false gods, which is allowed, which we just read in some of these verses. Number two, participating in the actual worship of those false gods, which is forbidden. And so, what's hard for us to understand when we read these verses is because we live in the 21st century in Canada, and they lived 2,000 years ago in pagan Roman culture, where in every Roman city, there would be dozens of temples, even hundreds of false gods and idols that they would worship. And in fact, in many cities, the Jews and the Christians were the only monotheists. Everybody else were, were polytheists. They worshiped multiple gods. And so on every street corner, there would be temples to these idols and 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 if you had a job working in a very in various trades there were unions and, and so if you worked in uh, as a craftsman if you worked as a carpenter if you worked as a spice merchant if you were a soldier those unions had their own gods that you were required to worship as part of keeping your job And so each city's social calendar, when you think of this and realize what that was like, their days, their, their seasons were filled with festivals to various idols, to worship and, and parties and drinking and eating. And there were even prostitutes where people would have sex in the temple of a pagan god as an act of worship. 
And so Christians were finding themselves in all of these awkward circumstances every day with their non-Christian friends and co-workers and neighbors. And all of these awkward situations are being addressed from different angles in the New Testament. And so sometimes you read a verse and it's talking about eating at temple restaurants. Like some of the, rest, the temples had their own version of McDonald's. Uh, sometimes you'll read a verse and it talks about buying eat uh, or buying meat in the market that had been sacrificed to idols. Other times you'll read a verse and it's talking about going as a guest to eat in somebody else's home. Sometimes a verse will talk about eating in the privacy of your own home. Other verses will talk about eating out in public where other people might see you. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in just that one chapter, it talks about three different types of circumstances that Christians would face concerning this issue. But in all of those different circumstances, I think that they can all really be categorized into, go back one, I think they can all be categorized into one of these two categories, purchasing or eating meat that had been dedicated to false gods versus number two, participating in the actual worship of those false gods. And when you realize those distinctions, all of a sudden, when you see two verses that seem to contradict your, each, themselves, then it looks like what you need to realize is that many times they're talking about different circumstances. And would you not agree that there's a big difference between buying or eating certain food versus actually worshiping a false god? And so let's look back again really quickly at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Now, notice it talks about eating at a particular type of table and drinking of a certain type of cup. We do that in church, right? when we call it coming to the Lord's table, if you will, in the act of communion. And so when you take communion in church to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, to receive that sacrament and the administration of his grace in it as an act of worship, there is nothing intrinsically special about the juice in the little cup or the little piece of bread. It's just bread and it's just juice. But when you take it as an act of worship, there's something special. There's something different about that, isn't there? And in the same way, these pagan temples had their own versions that were very similar to communion. And that is what the New Testament is condemning. Because Yahweh is God and God alone, and he will not share his worship with any other. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father unless they come through him. Let me give you another example. Let's say that my Muslim neighbor invites me 
to go and visit the mosque? Should I accept that invitation? And my answer would be yes. In fact, I have visited a number of mosques over the years. Why? To build bridges for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the spirit of Romans, in the spirit of Romans, Romans chapter 9, verse 19, Paul says, though I am free and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone. In other words, sometimes I do things that I wouldn't normally do in order to reach people who don't know Jesus, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. In, order, in other words, I, I began to kind of live according to some of their laws, even though I worship Jesus because I wanted to be able to connect with them and to those not under the law, to Gentiles, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And it continues. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So while I visit a mosque, I will not participate in worshiping Allah. Make no mistake, I will bow my knee to no other God but Yahweh. I will worship no other than my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I would gladly visit a mosque, but I will not worship Allah. And I will gladly eat halal food, but I will not worship Allah. But there's one more issue that the Bible always likes to contextualize and sometimes make things even a little more complicated than we would like. And it's the issue of personal convictions. Don't take this lightly. There are some things that God might tell you to do or not to do, even though it's not in the Bible. No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand. God will never call you to contradict his word. Not in contradiction of scripture. But there might be certain things that the Bible does not forbid, but God says it might be okay for everybody else, but it's not okay for you. That's called a personal conviction. For some people, that personal conviction might involve not eating halal food for any number of reasons. For some, it might involve not having a television in your home. For some, it might involve not being on social media for a certain reason. For some, it involves not drinking alcohol. Many of us here have that conviction, not because the Bible forbids it, but because of a personal conviction for the sake of the gospel. And that's what it's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 10 where Paul says, now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something 
do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, that's not saying that there are many big G gods, it's many little g gods. In other words, there are many things that people worship in this world. Many different things that people worship in our culture. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. In other words, not everybody understands this. Some people are, so, are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial foods, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? And what it's saying is, if someone used to come from worshiping those things, you don't want to do something that might cause them to deny their faith in Christ and go back to idol worship. For example... I do not drink alcohol. Is it because the Bible says that alcohol in moderation as long as you're not getting drunk is sinful? The Bible doesn't say that. But nevertheless, me and our, and our pastors and many leaders in the church, many Christians, have decided because of a personal conviction not to drink alcohol. Why? Because there are many of you who came from a background where drunkenness, alcoholism was a problem. And in me exercising my right as a believer, I don't want to invite you to a bar to hang out with me where you might be tempted to slip back into your old ways. Not because alcohol is sinful in and of itself, but because I love you and I want to help you in growing in your faith. So just because we're allowed to do something doesn't mean that we should. And there are some things that we don't do just because we don't want to cause a weaker brother or sister in Christ to get confused and stumble into sin. And so how do we best magnify the name of Jesus in our community. This is the messy middle of grace and truth. We talk about this a lot 
around here because Jesus in John chapter 1 verse 18 came from the Father full of what? Everybody read it together with me. Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And Jesus was the embodiment of love. And so we believe that grace plus truth equals love. Now, what we tend to see in our culture is people running to either extreme. That's what's becoming more and more common in our culture. Grace, grace, grace. Oh no, forget about tr grace, truth, truth, truth. And here's the danger. It, it is so much easier to live on the extremes of grace with no truth or truth with no grace. And so all grace people will say, forget about the Bible. Who cares what the Bible says? Do whatever you want. But here's the problem. Grace without the application of biblical truth is powerless to change people's lives. And so some Christians in their desire to be devoted to God's truth, leave grace behind. With no concern for building bridges to people who are lost and headed for eternity, separated from Christ. And Jesus was full of both grace and truth. And here's what, here's what happened to Jesus. All grace people accused him of being too hard and all truth people accused him of being too soft. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? <laughs> you see, that's why being in an outreach-focused church, reaching people who don't know Jesus, at an outreach-focused like Moncton Wesleyan, an outreach-focused church will always be a messy place. And grace-only people <laughs> will accuse you of being too mean and too tied to the Scripture. And then other Christians will accuse you of being too soft because of your focus on grace. <laughs> when you walk the line of Radical grace and biblical truth. Sometimes you get attacked from both sides. But here's, here's what I want to commit to you. I want to absolutely promise you, make this firm commitment to you. Number one, we are deeply committed to the truth of God's word. And number two, our hearts break for people who do not know Jesus. And we would climb the highest mountain, we would swim the widest ocean, we would walk over broken glass, whatever it takes to share the love of Jesus with people who do not know him. And I can promise you, at times we will mess up because living in grace and truth is a messy place to be. And sometimes we'll make mistakes. We're not perfect, but we will always stay committed to the truth of God's word and passionate about sharing Jesus' love with those who are lost. Do you believe that God's love, full of radical grace 
and biblical truth. In fact, I, I think you could say it with me. Let's say it together. God's love full of radical grace and biblical truth is the only thing that can change the world. Let's say it again. God's love full of radical grace and biblical truth is the only thing that can change the world. Let's stand. And so our Heavenly Father, we are here today as your servants. Father, thank you for your word. We love your word. As scripture says, it is sweet like honey on our lips. And even when your word is hard medicine, even when it does not taste good on our lips, like medicine, it is healing for our bones. And so, Father, we seek to build our lives upon the truth of your word. Father, if there's anyone here today who has not yet found the life-transforming grace and truth of Jesus in their lives yet. Lord, today we believe that you are speaking to them, calling out their name. And you can transform them, God. You can set them free from whatever bondage, whatever discouragement, whatever lies. You are the answer. And so right now in your heart, if you need to surrender to God, the Bible says that you need to confess your sin, confess that you have wandered away, that you've been living a life for yourself rather than for God. Confess your sin and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that you can be forgiven. Believe it and receive it, his gift of grace. His forgiveness now as it washes over you. Father, we confess our sin. We believe that Jesus died for us. And we receive your amazing grace. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us illumination to understand your word as we live it out. And in all we do, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.